2: Oh, Recorded live. Well, hello to everybody who's listening to this. This is Derek Logue with Tom Madison, and uh, we're going to start the first of our SoClear talks. Um, for those who don't know, SoClear was, was an organization that Tom and I had worked together on years ago. Well, actually, Tom created it. I, he just sort of brought me on board and um, we would like to bring it back in the future with a focus on on issues related to regist- registered citizens in the media, and we thought that we would attempt something a little new here, so we're going to start uh, these, these little discussions, and Tom and I have a pretty good topic to discuss. Him and I do a lot of talking behind the scenes. Um, he's one of my favorite people to talk to, and so... Um, there was an idea that I, that just kind of popped in my mind. I mean, actually, it's been in my mind for a very long time, and we and Tom and I have had quite a few discussions on this. And that is our topic for this first So Clear talk today. And the topic would be it is entitled um, the comparison between the victim industry and organized religion. Now, before we get started, you know, I have to put a little a slight little disclaimer on here, just so that way people can not get riled up. No, I'm not going to be bashing anybody's religion. We're not going to be trying to proselytize you and turn you into atheists. As a matter of fact, I'm not an atheist. I'm still a Catholic, just not a very good practicing one. Um, Tom, of course, you know, you're, he's an atheist. He, he's proud to admit that one. Isn't that right, Tom? Well, of course. It's not everybody. Yeah, well, you know, Catholics and, and atheists can get together and have interesting discussions. And you know it, it over time as I've dealt with the victim industry um, I see a lot of um, I see a lot of similarities between how we treat the victim industry and particularly the specific victims and um, how we how we um, relate to organized religion and Again I'm not bashing religion you know religion's important to a lot of individuals uh, Faith is important, but in many ways uh what I see with the victim industry is there there are a number of um there are a number of ways that we treat victims that um you know we don't seem to want to question them in any way and that's you know the first tenet of the of this discussion is that um You know, we treat the victim like a sacred cow. And I'm sure some of you have heard me say this. A sacred cow, you're never to be questioned in any way. If a victim says something, then whatever they say is pretty much gospel. Um, If they say, for example, that one in three girls and one in seven boys will be molested before age 18, who are we to question them, right? And... Of course, uh, you know, there's a lot of teachings to this victim industry. I, I guess it'll be easier for me to just go down these bullet points and then we can just get into a a discussion. I know Tom, you have your own bullet points as well. Um, you know, here here here's my five um here's my five bullet points for this topic. Number one, the victim industry is a sacred cow and is never to be questioned in any way number two the teachings of the victim cult is dogma and should be accepted by faith alone and such as what i've mentioned earlier the one in three girls one in seven boys uh, the belief that um, sex abuse causes lifelong suffering the victims which justifies lifelong punishment of registered citizens number three is that the victim is not heard and the fourth one is the underreporting. that i'm sure there's a lot more to be discussed but we don't want to we could talk about this all night and We're trying to limit it here today a little bit. Um, The third tenet is that education is a threat to faith. This applies both in the religious world and the victim industry. Uh, Number four, both religion and victim industry advocates rely on the persecution complex for victims. They claim that they're never heard, that there is a culture of slut-shaming, a rape culture, that um, a culture of silence. And number five, the only people who deny their attendance must be either rape apologists and sex offenders. Um, do you
1: have a couple that you might want to
2: add to that one, Tom?
1: Uh, boy, that's quite a list. I, if I went uh, beyond that, I I, I would probably uh, going to the uh, very infinite uh, edges of uh, of nowhere. But you've you've named a couple of uh, at least well two or three things that I think are worth commenting on. I'll keep them short at the beginning of this uh, radio hour uh but you you mentioned something interesting and I, I before the phone call that we're on today i have been thinking about you know this topic the victim industry as a uh, as a kind of a religion and i i think that's probably it does have some similarities with that i, I think number one the victim industry is a is part of a a, a profit industry in the sense that uh it, it profits in either direct funding by government in some cases of uh victims rights groups around the country, or whether they're doing a particular function, such as the Parents for Megan's Law out in uh, Suffolk County, New York, where they have a contract to do address verification of sex offenders living in that county, or whether the victim industry is uh, the likes of a Books Foundation uh, of uh, South Florida, where the Books family, uh, essentially Ron Book and his uh, adult daughter, Laura Lauren, who is running for the state senate in that state uh but have have a profit in mind with regards to political careers and i suppose uh uh ron books uh future agenda with a with a roll of uh, a list of items to be lobbied uh, at the state capitol knowing his daughter there is serving in the senate i suppose she'll be elected i I, I should say that's uh, not done yet but is likely to from what we see today uh so so profit is built into it, I mean, just like religion. I mean, religion, uh, many have said, uh, is is our profit centers. They are uh, a, a kind of toll booth into uh, getting uh, from here to there in the afterlife, uh, supposedly. Getting into heaven is going to cost you, whether it's uh, behaving yourself at a minimum and or tithing 10% of your uh, income to the church. It's a form of toll keeping or gatekeeping, however you want to look at it, but that, that toll booting, as I call it, toll booting requiring a charge to get somewhere is, is, is the profit incentive um, in religion. That's how churches get bigger. That's how the Catholic Church is so big. It's been doing that for centuries, but so have other churches. All churches need funding. All organizations need funding, so I guess you could call it that in a broad way. Uh, there are nonprofit churches as well as uh, what, I would, what I would term profit churches, Yes, all churches are non as they are organized under the IRS codes, but but really if you look at what, what benefits go to the church, the church property, the church corporation, they're definitely uh what what at least from a distance you'd call profit. So yes, the victims industry, uh, like you said, Derek, is is like a religion that it profits that it it, it is a information gatekeeping in terms of what is defined, what's acceptable, what's not, and also functions as a kind of toll booting Uh, of where monies flow into it and those uh, monies keep uh, the politics of the persecution of sex offenders alive and and helps fund itself.
2: Well, you know, organized religion, there's a lot of good churches out there. So that, you know, we're not knocking, um, you know, we're not knocking those who do good works, um, there's certainly a number of them out there there 's a lot of very good charities and there and there are some good victim industry advocates out there who you know who also um, you know who also do a lot of good work and you know and even with you know even with Lauren Books Foundation despite what she might despite the lies that she 's put out there about me personally um I feel like that at least some of the work that they do is really good nobody's arguing that. You know education and prevention of sexual abuse is a bad thing I mean, you know i'm not i'm certainly not saying that neither are you tom those are good noble you know lofty goals um the problem that i have with lauren book and lauren book epitomizes the everything that's wrong with the victim ministry is she's using her background to it's sort of like a shield you know if, if you question her on anything and of course, she's you know, in addition to being a victim industry advocate, we all know by now that Lauren Book is running for state senate in Florida. And if you question her on you know anything, politicians tend to question on everything, obviously. You know, they're 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 heavily scrutinized people. We love to watch a politician fall, but in the case of Lauren Book, nobody's hitting her with the hard hitting questions. So back in March Um, I was in this article from the Broward New Times uh, where I had mentioned that Lauren Book had taken $50,000 from GEO Group, which, of course, is the private prison industry. And there's a lot of controversy with GEO, a lot of mismanaged prisons, including a couple of juvenile facilities, one in Texas and one in, in Mississippi, where there had been rampant physical and sexual abuse going on in these facilities. And under normal circumstances, an individual would question whether it's wise for, a, you know, for a charity to take money from such controversial organizations, especially if you're stamping out sexual abuse. And, um, in, you know, the reason why I'm bringing this up is because um, a person forwarded an email to me recently that he had contacted Miss um, Book and her foundation about this Um you know, about this 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 news that she had you know, had, that she had uh collected this fifty thousand dollars from, from Geo Group or sixty five thousand if you count the um that they collected an extra fifteen thousand from Geo Health, which is a subsidiary of Geo Group. So It's all come from the same company. Um but, you know, their their response is their response was essentially, well, consider the source. You know, it, um you know derek logue he's a sex offender, so you know he must be a he must be a liar um we don't know anything about these allegations, and that's pretty much what they wrote and then of course they they, they accuse the media of
1: of ranting of of uh writing from a slanted perspective as well so All right well, it seems like the victim industry uh does follow kind of a generalized template of of religion where especially the christian religion uh going back to when um Jesus was uh, doing his uh, uh, proselytizing back in that time to uh, sell ideas of peace, love, of, uh, of equality in society of that time. And he was a political activist, and uh, he certainly did stir up the politics in Rome at the time, so much so that uh, he was punished for it. And Jesus might be the, the all-time Victim, victimized by politics, and was was murdered for it. He was uh, he became a, a a sacralized victim. He went into sainthood, uh, if you want to call it that, or he became a uh, a, a victim uh, representation of, uh, for the poor. He became an icon, and in a lot of the same ways uh, with the sex offender industry, the, sec, the you know, sex offending in society today, whether you have Sex, uh, sex, abuse victims. It's as if, in a way, that they have been also sacralized—that is to made sacred—in uh, the sense of uh, this uh, this era we live in, of where uh, victims somehow uh, they start out being victims, but the media will carry them to the heights of a sainthood, so that, uh, like in the case of uh, Lauren Book and other. Victims of uh, sex abuse in the past, there is this 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 uh, uh, sainthood that goes with it. It's a, it's a prized position in society, uh, and it's almost almost as if to want to be attained. Because when you are a victim and you've been you've arrived at sainthood of some sort, you have a status now as a person victimized, and because uh, maybe uh, of that of that status, you can now make excuses for your lack of progress in life, whether you. Did not go into business and uh, you know succeed in that way, or get a, get a better education, or uh, not succeed at other pursuits. In life, but you can always fall back on your sainthood. Your sainthood as a victim gives you an excuse that uh, I didn't get to my goals because uh, I was I was held. Uh, I, I think that tends to play as part of it, but I think I think the religious, the you know the connections to religious or the, a religious template do apply, and I think. The fact that in this country, I think victims have been raised to that level of uh, of, a, of a saint of a sort, it seems.
2: Well, you know, as a Catholic, I can relate to the analogy of the the sainthood. I mean, you know, there's the martyrs, you know, the people who died for the faith, and you know, that's the ultimate victimhood, is to be killed for your cause, and it, you know, and a lot it, obviously the laws, you know, Megan's Law, Jessica's Law, Adam Walsh Act um you know the all the way back to the Jacob loading act you know these are martyrs and so you know we, we we've given them a sainthood status and we've you know created these laws in their name and so people are suffering in their name just like unfortunately a lot of people um, have suffered in the name of jesus christ over many many generations you know, and people have used Jesus as a rallying cry to commit all kinds of atrocities. And, and of course, and and the irony of all this is that while that's happened, you have a lot of individuals who are religious who feel like, well, um, you know, in society we're being persecuted because um, society is not allowing that, you know, is not uh, allowing prayers in schools because it offends certain people or – You know or whatever and so they feel like well my religion is being attacked well we live in a culture where we have freedom of religion and and of course some people might argue freedom from religion and when we ask people to you know the funny thing is you know the religious people want their voice to be heard but a lot of times there's a lot of them who don't want the other side to be heard and the victim industry is no different and that's what that's what they claim that we're always being persecuted nobody listens to us when we go to court you know it's always the rights of the accused that are being considered and not our rights and we need a victim bill of rights um you know if anybody dares to question the victim that's slut shaming that's rape culture um you know and and they invoke all this stuff from the 1960s and 1970s um and so you know that that's intended to keep us from dare how dare us question their tenets you know we we what they say is gospel we should not dare to question it and nobody does when they so when they bring up one in three girls and one in seven boys i i pose this question to a lot of people recently where did it come from nobody knows i know knows. I, to, I know well most people don't know i know um or at least I have a good idea uh, of where it came from. And, you know, Tom, I told you I was going to bring this one up. Um, there was a book called uh, – this is the wrong book, darn it. <laughs> I grabbed the wrong one here. Hold on a second. I got this book. It's entitled uh, – this is a book from 1989. It's called The Right to Innocence, Healing the Trauma of Childhood Sexual Abuse by Beverly Engel. It was written in 89 during the height of the, the – um, mcmartin sexual abuse uh scandal um and uh this is what it this is what it reads um you you know, how, yeah yeah the we, well we all well the real scandal is that people believe a bunch of bs we all know that repressed memory syndrome was, was pretty much made up um that there was no rampant sexual abuse in in, in daycares by satan worshiping cult members and stuff but um you know, at that time, this was written when people believed repressed memory. As a matter of fact, uh, Beverly Engel, you know, writes a lot in this book about repressed memory. And, and, and I'm going to read some of the, you know, I feel like it's important people need to, to, listen, to, need to hear this. It's going to take me a few minutes to read all, all of it. Um, it says, according to the figures from the now famous 1985 Los Angeles Times survey, it is estimated that nearly 38 million adults were sexually abused as children. Current research, including Hank Giorito's survey of 250,000 cases referred to the Child Sexual Assault Treatment Program, which appeared in the journal Sexual Abuse and Neglect, Volume 6, Number 3, 1982, indicates that one in every three women and one in every seven men were sexually abused by the time they reached the age of 18. In 1979, sociologist Diana Russell interviewed more than 900 randomly chosen San Francisco women and reported her findings in her book, The Secret Trauma. She found that 38% of those questioned, or nearly four women in every 10, were sexually abused before age 18. In the Times survey, 22% of those questioned, 27% of the women and 16% of the men had said they had been sexually abused as children. Uh, blah, blah, blah. I, I, I want to fast forward a little bit. It mentions the um, McMartin case. Um, this is what they what they also. This is what she talked. Also, if you had ever had any reasons to suspect you may have been sexually abused, even if you have no explicit memory of it, the chances are very high that you were. Sexual childhood sexual abuse is such an overwhelming, damaging, and humiliating assault on a child's mind, soul, and body that he or she cannot ex- escape emotional damage. The abuse invade every facet of one's sexuality, one's ability to be successful, one's ability to trust others, physical health, self-esteem, relationships to others. It causes the victims to be self-destructive, over-controlling and abusive to others, as well as addiction to alcohol, drugs and food, and attraction to love partners who abuse them physically, verbally and emotionally. The victims come to feel ashamed, guilty, powerless, depressed, afraid, and angry. Whether you actually remember the abuse or not, the damage caused by the abuse only increases with time. Now, this was all written in 1989, and here we are, um, almost 30 years later, and we still believe everything that that book has pretty much said. You know, saying the same statistics: the one in three well, girls, one
1: in seven boys. Yeah, still can there. Be, can be change a little bit, though, and I I did some research before the. Uh phone call today, uh, in that of, of this, you know, this uh, ongoing myth about uh, the the endless victimhood of, uh, or the victim status or pain, or what am I what I'm trying to say here, is, is suffering of sex abuse victims, and there's a book that came out uh, called The Trauma Myth, I think it came out in 2005, uh, written by Susan Clancy, who, if I tried to boil it all down, basically makes the point that uh, that actual sexual abuse of children is actually, uh, from a child standpoint, according to her, is that they, there really isn't uh, most of it isn't really about uh, being victimized. Right? As seen by the child, they're not being victimized. They're curious about what the adult is doing. They're they're uh, they're not aware. Oh, yeah, that's kind of weird, maybe in their way of looking at it, and and that uh, the, the trauma brought to the child is when that child, either then or later in life, brings it up, and the adults or the other adults uh, who are listening to the story being brought up by that uh, that child, a former child maybe, is, is worse than the actual incident itself. So uh, the adults reacting to the abuse is where the children begin to suffer because now they realize, oh, that's something I should have been uh, greatly ashamed about, it. I should have been greatly, uh, you know, feeling uh, terrible about it, and uh, and then and then feel some kind of impact from it beyond the act itself. The psychological in, uh, impact given to them by the parents or the other adults listening to the story of of that abuse specifically is what she was basically getting to, and and of course that uh, that doesn't fly. Doesn't fly in today's. Uh, general world of, uh, of support for the victim industry, but at least she wrote the book. She wrote it with uh, the idea that uh, that the the persecution of sex offenders today in a very broad way uh, is overdone, that uh, the calling of every single victim of sex abuse, even the word victim itself is, is inappropriate since the child at the time doesn't recognize it in itself as being victim, that in many cases, uh, according to Adults, who were, when they were children, were when they were uh, sexually touched, for example, they felt pleasure, they didn't know it was wrong, until later, when pointed out by somebody who is in a position of authority or another adult judging it, then makes them a victim at that point, and then, they, then, they do, then the trauma sets in. The trauma sets in when it is pointed out that they were abused and they should think of themselves as a victim
2: right and you know what um
1: since you mentioned susan clancy susan clancy
2: of course that that um that book is a really good book and it um you know but at the same time um individuals downplayed what she wrote as rape apologist um sex offender apologist and she's not alone judith levine had written a book a couple of years prior called harmful to minors the perils of protecting children from sex in 2002 which she suggested liberalization of of consent laws of the u.s um to discuss the fact that my that some minors at least i mean you know the older they get the more sexual we become you know most of us were teenagers uh, i'm sure we've all been teenagers at some point and remember that we were um you know pretty you know pretty intrigued by sex through our teenage years you know it's it, you know it was a big deal for us to you know to explore sexuality in our teenage years but at the same time our culture kind of teaches um that you know that you should pretty much be a virgin until you're married or at least until you're age 18 and and um if you are sexual you know we don't want to believe that teenagers are sexual and so her her book was also condemned primarily by conservatives And of course there was the study the the rhine the rhine study from 1988 that had the audacity to suggest that all that not all sexual sexual contact between adults and minors caused irreparable harm to everybody that's done it and, of course, that, the Rhine study was considered so controversial that Congress actually went so far as to as to file a, um, you know, I forget what, it, what it's called, an order or, or, or a, um, what's, the, what's the term, a, a resolution, that's what it is. That's what it was, a resolution to condemn the Rhine study, despite it being upheld by the scientific community. And of course, nobody talks about that study today because it goes completely against the dogma of the victim industry right and of course of course you know we're and of course we're not advocating you know um you know we have disclaimers on our own websites we don't advocate the you know um, a, you know lowering of age of consent laws, sexual abuse of children or anything else like that um but You know, we have to be so careful when we even have a discussion about the possibility that, you know, that anybody under the age of 18 just might actually think about sex, that, um, you know, if you discuss it, then
1: you're advocating the abuse of children. Well, Susan Clancy in that book, uh, The Trauma Myth, uh, did talk about the fact that, according to her numbers, again, a a limited uh, survey of uh, victims, uh, you know, or people with sexual experiences as young children or, or as teenagers. She said about 2%, maybe 3% of the cases were, were serious. I mean, you're dealing with really young children. Those are violent uh, cases and so forth, and uh, those she certainly isn't uh, taking any sides with as far as, I mean, as far as defending any any of the acts because that child is so young as to can't consent anyway, whether illegal or not. Uh, but the 98%, she was saying, according to the Group of 200 or maybe 250, uh, you know, cases that she had reviewed were people that didn't think anything of it until when pointed out later that oh yes you were abused and uh, you should feel trauma or at least you were traumatized and you know go through the process then and then and at that point then the then the victim or the 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 person then becomes a victim at the point of oh you mean I'm supposed to be a victim oh okay I'll I'll get into that role and it becomes a role to play. But before that, oh, it's just sex. I was, yeah, I was, uh, I was, I was 13 years old, and uh, the neighbor boy who was, uh, you know, he's five years older. He touched me, and I didn't think anything of it. It kind of felt good a little bit. It tickled. Maybe I didn't think anything of it. It's kind of strange the way he did certain things. But uh, I let it alone until now, 20 years later. Oh, yeah, you're right. I was victimized. Yeah, you're right. I was, I'm a victim of sexual offending by my neighbor at that time. But I don't. I don't become a victim until it's pointed out to me. Otherwise, I'm not a victim. I'm not a victim yet. I'm a victim in waiting until I, it's pointed out that I that I am a victim. Isn't that funny how that works?
2: Right. Well, how come um, anybody who is an advocate for the rights of former offenders we have we unfortunately, you know, have to deal with the victim industry, which personally I don't think the victim industry. You know, should be a, you know should be a player in this issue. I know, I know that's probably a controversial view even within our movement to suggest that. But you know, my argument is this: that the victim, you know, the, the the victim industry should be focused on the victims themselves. You know, they should be dealing with healing for victims of crimes, any kind of crimes, not just sex crimes, and of course to help them with the you know with the criminal justice system but the victim industry overstepped its bounds the day that it you know that it was interge- that it's interjecting itself into the lifelong punishment of registered citizens you know when it, our the punishment is supposed to be confined to the criminal justice system you know whether it's probation whether it's parole whether it's incarceration or even civil commitments um you know but of course the, you know, in civil commitments, as there should be in prison and, and probation parole, a element of um, rehabilitation. Because mm-hmm. sooner or later, most registered most sex offenders are going. You know, people who have committed sex crimes are going to be on the street. We're going to register for some time, and what you want for these individuals is you know, we're, is that, you know, yes, they're going to be punished, but at the same time, they're also going to be rehabilitated, and we want them, if they're going to be released into the communities, we want them to have the opportunity to become productive members of society. Right. So why are they pitting the victim industry? Why does the victim industry feel the need to pit itself against, you know, healing? Because it, to me it's hypocritical to say, well, we're we want, healing we want people to recover but yet we're at the same time what we're teaching is hatred and we want to advocate the lifelong punishment and the only way you're going to advocate the only way you're going to justify lifelong punishment is to be lifelong victims and so we need you as beverly engel says in her book to remember to recall and to and to bring it out
1: to light and to talk about it
2: over and over and over again,
1: well, you're talking about the religion of gain, the religion of profit, the religion of revenue and 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 ladder climbing, political and economic ladder climbing um you know in in the field of, of finance, especially uh, the kind of finance you find on Wall Street and other investment houses there's a there's a concept called politic or excuse me of uh, financial arbitrage. And arbitrage is an interesting word. It, it means in the buying and selling of uh, of a product, a financial instrument of some sort, where in, in, a, in a very quick fashion, there's a price difference between one side of this country and the other, or maybe across continents, where there might be a small uh, difference in pricing where you buy and then sell quickly and make a profit, and that's uh, profiting uh, via arbitrage. And and that arbitrage, then again, it then is the difference between one Value and another value, and the wider that value, the greater the profit. Right? If you can get in there and do your trade and then get out. So, uh, arbitrage, not just in a financial sense, but we extend the definition to a political sense, into a social sense. Then we're looking at uh, kind of a maybe a social arbitrage, a the difference between something that's good and that's something that's bad, and the wider the span. Between good and bad is the greater the profit that comes from this social or political arbitrage. so in the case of of, of sex abuse victims and sex victimizers let's call them, um, you have this uh, this arbitrage this political arbitrage that's available, and that's where that's where your profit comes in that's where your religion of gaining something where there existed nothing before. so if you can keep adding spanners in between. The good and the bad. You, this 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 difference between the two points becomes political profit, political career gains, uh, media profits. Um, you know, uh, uh, organizations like uh, victims' rights groups in that industry profit by keeping the differences between the two. In other words, keeping victims hyper victim victims. And keeping victimizers as hyper victimizers, then you span those two as far as as possible for political and financial gain. It's really about the religion of money, the religion of gain, the religion of profit. If you want to boil it down, I think I can't say it any better than that. Well,
2: I think that that, that's definitely a good point. See, now I you know I love the Christian faith. Um, I love you know but I don't like a lot of the churches because there's a lot of churches that are seem to be, you know, profit motive seems to take precedence over everything over everything. Um, you know, the religion, uh, the religion of Christ is more of a socialist type of religion. It's not uh, you know, contrary to popular belief, it's not a capitalist system. You know, Jesus told people to, you know, to, to, um, you know, to sell everything and follow him. And you know and and the people in a in the book of acts they shared with one another and it's a dangerous thing when we, when any any institution their their primary motive becomes money because in order you know in order to make money you have to bring people into the fold but you know that that's one thing where the victim industry and religion does kind of separate because with victims at least the, the desired goal is to not be a victim whereas with religion the goal is to bring people to become lifelong um, you know, lifelong people of the faith, and um, you know, unfortunately, with the money, when the money came into the equation, now the victim industry has incentive to not to, you know, to make people not victims anymore, but incentive to keep people and bring more victims in. So it becomes counterproductive to the very thing that they do. And really, with religion, it's the same thing. Money becomes more important than your faith. You know, and and I've been in churches, uh, I was in a group home for, for, um, you know, in a church home when I first got out of prison and we did a lot of fundraising and it reached a point where it became a competition and, you know, the people there judged your faith on your amount of faith in God on how much money you were bringing into the church. And I wasn't bringing in that much. And we're not talking about large amounts of money here. I'm talking about you're going out in the street corner selling candy. Now wrap your mind around the head of, a, of me being forced to do that for a living for a year. And, um, you know, and I come back with $20 a day and somebody might come back with 50 well, I'm holier than now. You know, I'm, it's, you know, it, it just kind of cheapened the entire experience of, um, you know, uh, of the faith that did. It, it made me question my faith when they started talking like that and of course i just you know now um you know now i don't really go to church that much anymore and there's a lot of good meaning there's a good a lot of good people in churches you know some of my, you know i met some really good people over the years but sometimes they're misinformed and um they tend to downplay our suffering because unfortunately the religion the organized religion they have this tendency to teach that um you know, your financial security is also, and they felt the same way. My, my financial security is also a, you know a, um, you know a, a litmus test for my faith. So um, I should be, you know, I should be doing something else. This isn't my calling because it's not making money.
1: Well, one of the questions that may we should probably ask ourselves is how is it that the victim industry can exist at all anyway? I mean, how is it that With respect to the term I used before, this concept of arbitrage, in other words, profiting between two price points, and some um, a diagram of some sort where uh, you have you know the extreme good, the extreme bad, the 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 extreme this, the extreme that, these this this that's between two things exists, and it becomes a a niche a niche industry. In other words, we we have this difference. The public is uninformed. We can. Profit and, and and do something with this. Make make political points. Make, you know bring some cash flow in from the state, however, it, or from individuals wanting to uh, make contributions to us so that we can have that cash flow. And uh, I think the reason, of course, and this will be this is no surprise to anybody when when I say it, is that the the uh, the news media today, in the country allows for. These, uh, these niche industries to exist, that is these industries that exist because, because there's a gap between what's informed opinion and what's not informed opinion, and that, that, that forms up that arbitrage between these two price points, these two difference, differences in opinion that allows for a niche to exist. And that boils down, as I said, to a, a, a media that doesn't spell out a full story, that doesn't cover both sides of the story, most media today i think it it, most people would agree is a is a media uh news uh telling where you have uh, uh you know you omit information that's critical to a full understanding of the story so i think these uh these opportunistic niches uh where you have a a difference between opinions that can allow a a niche industry to form a a victim's rights industry form because uh, the audience out there in society is not being fully informed. So you have one-sidedness in the media reporting, which then creates these these differences between uh, informed opinion and not informed opinion. That creates profit. That creates political opportunity as far as our legislators go. And, uh, and of course, media itself profits from the, the created arbitrage between telling a full story and then greatly omitting it, on the other hand. That's what forms the victims' rights industry, are the, uh, or, uh, sad to say, a one-sided media that uh, doesn't give us that full story.
2: Right. Well, we've had plenty of discussions about the media and their role and everything. And uh, You know, I, I, I want to, you know, do a quick review of what we've covered so far, you know, going back to those bullet points, you know, and, and the media is a huge, plays a huge role in the, the you know, in the uh, propagation of these tenets. The victim is a sacred cow and is never to be questioned in any way. The teachings of the victim ministry is dogma and should be accepted by faith alone. Religion and victim cults both rely on the persecution complex. Victims claim they've never they're never heard. So obviously, when you bring it up in the media, um, that's you know that's the big thing. We're 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 telling a unique voice and you know, when we're propagating rape culture, uh, human trafficking, um, you know, satanic, pedophilic cults or whatever. Um, And of course, the only people who are going to deny that they're either rape apologists, or they're the sex offenders themselves. So that's four out of the five that we've discussed so far. Well, let's get into um, the point that's really important. And this is where, you know, the, the anti registry movement plays a key role in this and is that education is a threat to one's faith and this applies both to religion and to the victim ministry um a couple years ago there was a study um th- that found that the longer a per the more educated a person was the less likely that person was to to consider themselves um religious which of course correlation doesn't exactly mean causation but when 10 percent of the general public you know uh, say that they're atheists when they have less educ. you know on average but uh a person who has a doctorate degree is about 20 something percent likely to be an atheist then that's, that's saying something education is a key to breaking down dogma whether you know it's discussing religious dogma or um, the dogma of the victim industry and that's something that we do as a movement because unfortunately since they pitted us against the victims one of the one of the targets of one of our targets that we have to go after in order to try to get relief for ourselves is to take on the victim industry head on. So we have to take on the things they say about us.
1: Well, that's true. Uh, you know, many many writers that I uh, have come across have uh, mentioned the the era that we live in today. They an era they call as the uh, an era of irrationality, as opposed to a the previous period where we had rationality or more generally a, a period of time, a period of history called the Enlightenment, which began in the 1700s, some say, and then lasted all the way up to about 1970 or so, and things began to change. And the Enlightenment period was a period of, uh, of science, of scientific discovery, of using evidence over, over myth, uh, over expert testimony, over that of somebody who is merely article of something but not specialist in something, uh, but uh, that we wanted proof and scientific proofs and evidential proofs to show the way, and that allowed for a progressive society to develop and move forward. And we progressed with all of the inventions that I could go on a long list that uh, we all know about, from uh, uh, cotton gin machines to uh, the, uh, the 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 beginnings of the computer age back in the 1940s and all the rest of it. I mean, just a long list of technological advancements. But that all kind of slowed down in a sense. We, we went from, uh, and certainly socially and politically, went from a, a rational, enlightened society to a kind of inverted, upside-down, backward kind of body where evidence wasn't so important anymore, feelings became superior, uh, politics and opinion became superior to evidence. And it started to invert Societal institutions uh, certainly politics certainly the uh, even the economics the way that we suffer today is a result of some of the inverting of uh, individual uh, group in, uh, that is individual interest uh, in society as, as political freedom versus that of uh, of uh, of economic freedom which is a different animal altogether. Where and I won't go into that's kind of off the track here, but what I'm getting at is we live in a period of uh, irrational um, institutions where where emotion, the emotions of fear, of greed, of hatred, of shame, all kind of come together to be a superior guiding forces as opposed to the forces of rational thinking and reasoning. That, I think, is largely explains the, the current era we live in.
2: Right. Well, you know what? People who follow the religious tenets, I mean, you know, there's a lot of them that... You know, obviously there's still a lot of Christians in America. You know, I'm, you know, I I still profess to be one of them, even if I don't go to church every single Sunday. Um, uh, You know, there there, a lot of people still get it wrong. I mean, you know, and, and, you know, and despite a wealth of information out there, I mean, you can go online and you could do lots of research. But the question is, what's the quality of that research? I mean, and the Bible even warns, it's it's believers. As they not everybody that that shouts Lord, Lord is you know, is, is a man of the cloth. You know, it's, there's a lot of there's going to be a lot of phonies out there. There's going to be a lot of people pretending to be charlatans, pretending to be Christian, and they're going to do great things in the name of their faith. And they're going to you know, they're going to cast out demons. They're going to feed the poor. They're going to you know, they're going to preach to the ends of the earth. But at the end of the, you know, but. Uh, you know, at the end times, when they stand before God, you know, God's going to say, "Well, I never knew you. Get out of here." You know, and you know, with um, and there's a lot of well-meaning people out there, but it's like they use the Bible as a weapon against other people, and that's probably the that's probably one of the worst examples of blasphemy that you can do is to use your faith as a tool to go after people and the victim ministry does exactly that i'm a victim and i should go after all these people uh, lauren book should come after me and laura Ahern should come after me because i am an evil wicked sex offender and they're these poor angelic victims and everything i say is garbage and uh, nobody should ever listen to what i have to say i should have no voice uh, because all I want to do is abolish the registry, so I can go out more and molest more kids, and and so um, you know I'm the devil in their eyes,
1: you know. Yeah, and, you know and, and, the question is, though, Gary is, is, is as far as asking of them, you know, the old uh, you know, qui bono? You know, what's in it for them? What? Why are they so de- uh, protective of the of that nest egg, that institutional nest egg of uh, victims' rights profiteering? And, of course, that's exactly what it is. It's uh, it's defending cash flow. It's defending a place in society of feeling good about yourself because you can uh, uh, supposedly protect victims by demonizing and persecuting former offenders like they do and, and make a profit at it at the same time to have an income. It's all about uh, looking at the money flow and where it all goes and, and where it all comes from. And uh, as we all know, in, in, those of us in the sex offender repeal law movement is the the repeal of the sex and law movement, sorry, is the uh, idea that these laws have uh, gone overboard and that they exist to uh, cause us pain, and our pain ends up being their profit. And the sooner we come around to that, realizing that's what's really happening, it's a, it's an, it's a, it's a uh, socio-economic political proposition that allows them to profit off our pain. That's the bottom line. That's why, I said, that's why they attack you, Derek, because they're protecting their cash flow.
2: Yeah, well this is you know this isn't just me. I mean that's just an example, but um obviously most of us have dealt with this as well. Tom, you or anybody in our movement has gone on to one of these websites and posted in a comment forum somewhere and of course what's the first thing people tend to say, well, if you if they, you know you must be a sex offender yourself. And not and you know, obviously well, you know, when I do it obviously I'm a sex offender but you know registered citizen not sex offender, you know, former offender, though I know we all use various, you know, terms. But, um, you know, obviously not everybody in our movement who is a voice in this movement is on the registry. We have, we have wives, we have mothers, we have brothers and sisters, um, friends, um, you know, lobbyists and, and attorneys and, and researchers and, um, you know, and even members of the media who recognize that we are saying something contrary, but what we are saying is the truth. We are bringing education to a much needed topic that, you know, up till now, which, you know, which was just whatever things that the victim industry has always wanted to say, we they just accept it, but now they're being challenged, they're not they're not uncomfortable, they're not used to it. So all they can do. Because they don't even know where their own studies came from, so all they can do is, is, is attack the messenger. Oh, Derek, he, he's a sex offender, so don't listen to him. You know, and that's the best they could. That's the best Lauren Book could do. She couldn't say, "Well, this is what the study here's the here's the here's the actual studies." When we say three point five percent recidivism rate, we can point to a study that says it's they can't do that. When has the victim industry ever put a study and say, look, this is, the, this is the the original source of our study. This is where one in three girls and one in seven boys comes from. Not
1: a damn one of them can say that. Not one. Well, you know, this reminds me of the uh, the perversion of our language today. And, you know, many many in the past have talked about uh, 1984, you know, George Orwell's uh, uh novel, Dealing with a dystopian society of the future, this was written back in 1948, but looking ahead as to some of the possibilities that uh, that might exist in society in the future, and one of the terms of of one of the many terms that come out of this book and used today to to talk about and discuss the the society we live in now is is a term called Newspeak. Newspeak is a is a way of limiting the language that we use or to twist the language to mean things that it doesn't mean um, such as uh, using the term sex offender when in most cases uh, we all know that uh, registered sex offenders you know also known as former sex offenders have very low reoffense rates Um, and so the language uh, should reflect that, that fact that a current tense term sex offender doesn't fit the data yet the laws, you know, in the, in the land, the statutes that defines uh, crimes uh, of a sexual nature, as that ultimately, eventually requiring registration as a sex offender. They're they're called sex offender registration laws. A sex offender, you're you're a current tense sex offender. You committed uh, an offense supposedly in the last uh, hour, the last day, the last week, whatever it is. But you're you're assumed to be always be committing sex offenses, and therefore. Uh, it, it amounts to a hijacking of the language uh, and a perversion of the language to fit the political needs of the time to help those politicians with their re-election campaigns of tough on crime and so forth. But yeah, it's a perversion of the language. But we live in Orwellian uh, times of newspeak where language is uh, twisted, it, it's uh, it perverted, it's, it is uh, turned upside down so that uh, white equals black, that good equals bad, all of those kinds of uh, manipulations. That's the time we live in because we don't live in a in that rational society. I would argue that these things be torn down, that we get back to a rational society. And irrational society allows for things like newspeak and other Orwellian terms and concepts to exist because we aren't challenging it. We aren't, a, we aren't so much a rational society as we might have been or could have
2: been. You know, what you said earlier, and we had this conversation, I'm glad that you finally brought it up um that you know we're using you know we're using the term sex offender as a noun to describe an event that happened in the past you know a sexual you know you know you sexually offended somebody which is you know an adjective and you know and now you're a sex offender well you know the logic is a little bit broken because if i drank alcohol one time in my life am i an alcoholic um no but that one time that i drank in my life i could have did something stupid i could have got in my car drove down the street and ran over some poor little kid and for the rest of my life of course i will you know i i would never touch another drop again i don't have a problem with alcohol but i made a dumb decision there's a lot of individuals who are the equivalent of that of that scenario I just described only instead of drinking and running over a kid, they committed some sort of a sex offense. They got a little too hot and heavy with their, you know, with a girl they dated and and it it, it crossed a line that shouldn't have been crossed or, you know, um, an individual who went through a messy divorce and ended up kissing an underage girl, um, you know, and and stuff. I mean, you know, those are, those are terror. you know, those are crimes. You know not on the same level as a molester who molested 100 hundred hundred kids you know who who did it over a period of forty years and you know and who spends the rest of his life in prison but that but they're both looked at the exact same
1: way by our society the the problem with public policy today on the problem of sex offending is that we've and of course the, the especially involving the people who are accused and are convicted of committing sex. Uh, Abuse is the fact that we use. We've ended up with policies that focus on the noun "sex offender" instead of the verb "sex offending." In the one case, the noun is the person, the former sex offender who, in previous times, committed or is convicted of a sex offense. uh, And 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 yet that's that's water, you know, downstream of where we are today. It's already happened, and where our policies are focused on that noun. That is downstream from where we are where we stand today in time. And what what we fail to do is look at the verb sex offending, which is a verb and a word that lives upstream. In other words, time yet to come. We don't focus on that. And if we did focus on that, instead of the noun sex offender and the persecution of the former sex offender, we would focus on that verb, sex offending. And with that verb, we'd have policies that matched the verb to solve the problem of the verb sex offending, which would be education and information and expert testimony that and expert guidance and so forth that would direct public policy to get back onto the the process and the verb, the action verb, sex offending, instead of the static noun of yesterday, the sex offender.
2: Right. Uh, you know, as we wind down this conversation, because the hour is almost up here, um... You know, I want you know, I, uh, you know, I want one more time just to make sure that we haven't law that we haven't offended some people or anything. You know, it's not so much an attack on religion. I, li- I you know, I like the tenets of the faith. It's not, you know, it's it, it, it it's not the faith that's the problem. It's not the you know the the, the, uh, the teachings of the Bible that's the problem. It's it's the people that unfortunately um, you know that a lot of individuals who are put in charge of these faith the faiths. Um, are the ones that sort of defile the, the faith. You know, it, it, we 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 you know instead of people um, looking at the tenets of their faith, they look at what people are teaching them. And so, you know, we 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 want to create a you know instead of um, what's a good way of putting this, uh and, you know instead of finding a way to adhere to the tenets, we'd like to change the tenets to make them work for us. So now capitalism is a good thing, where the rich were condemned over and over in the Bible. Now capitalism is great because you know um, because USA is number one and, and, and you know God bless America and all that. And the Bible, of course, says something completely different. And you know, whether, you know, um, pretty much the tenets of the Bible can be summed up by James one twenty-seven, that says that. You know religion that god our father accepts as pure and faultless as this to look after orphans and widows and their distress and to keep oneself from being polluted by the world they would essentially what it comes down to is to do good deeds and not let yourself be swayed by all this bs that's being that that's that's floating around on the internet and a lot of people don't do that instead we have our own ideas and the victim ministry, obviously they have their own ideas as well and you know and and the thing about it is um you know when we when we attack them they're not doing you know they're not doing they're not always doing the good work they're not keeping themselves unstained as as being taught by their religion you know um you know a person goes to church on sunday and then he goes on the internet that evening and he and, and he's talking about killing sex offenders you know it's it, you know that's hypocrisy and you know the same thing with the victim industry oh you know we're 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 here to help the downtrodden you know the, and and stuff but uh while we're at it we're going to you know we're going to advocate um killing and castrating and, and murdering people at the same time so um you know or laura in the case of laura laura and she's going to sue and, say, and, and sue an individual who is on welfare and say that, you know, we we help the, the poor, the disabled, and the elderly, and those, you know, um, those on welfare. One
1: of the questions <laughs> I'm asking is of the victims industry is why do they not include the victimization of registered families and the victimization of registered citizens, registered citizens that have completed their their obligations to society that are now newly innocent citizens themselves. They're innocent and yet being punished by these registration laws. Why are they not taking up the the victims of these registration laws? I don't understand that, although I do know the answer. It's an interesting question to pose and to discuss maybe, Derek, on on another program, why the victim industry ignores victims of these registration laws.
2: Well um that's a good question uh parents from megan's law of course they really they recently changed their ni- name by the way to crime victim center incorporated now I assume that by incorporated now they're just basically foregoing the you know the um the farce of being a not-for-profit corporation because let's face it they're in it for the money we all know it um you know but the thing about it, yeah, you know, the collateral consequences of, of a person, you know, of a person's sex crime, that includes the families. The families, if they choose to stick with the, um, you know, the, the registrant, then um, they also suffer alongside of them. So um, a person who gets assaulted because of his status on the registry or a family member um, gets assaulted or their kid gets bullied at school – Parents from Vegas law is not going to do any, anything to help these people at all. You know, it's only some victims matter. It's just like the whole Black Lives Matter movement. I I know you're a supporter of them. I kind of laugh at them. And, but one of the things that, you know, that people point out, which, of course, you know, to me is also, you know, an example of the hypocrisy of the Black Lives Matter movement that they need to address is that, yes, it's, it's focused on, you know, police brutality as it relates to the black community. But, um you know, what about all the black-on-black crime that's being committed and the culture that, that promotes this stuff? Why aren't they, you know, why aren't they addressing that? When people bring it up, of course, a lot of times they're not bringing it up with the noblest of intentions either. So, um, you know, when they, do, when they do it, they're doing it mostly to, ma- to mock the message rather than, rather than doing it out of the welfare of the black community. You know, the well, for Black Lives
1: Matter um, movement is Black Lives Matter is the is, is not simply the things that you mentioned, those are good points that you do you did mention. I appreciate that. My take is simply just that of a group that that pushes uh, a political agenda that takes it to the street, that is politically aware, politically active. I, I look at it from that angle. Yeah. The questions you raise are good ones and I really I tend to push those aside as to not answer them because I'm looking at it from a tactical and a strategic angle of politics and applied politics in the street
2: well black lives matter and all lives matter i mean everybody's life should matter um you know it, it's unfortunate when in order to try to combat an issue of injustice i mean whether we're talking and of course you know we're kind of we're not really we're not really truly re- meandering away from the subject to here um But, you know, there's, you know, the Black Lives Matter thing, it's a focus on injustice, just like what we do also focuses on an injustice. And, you know, and most people within our movement, you know, where I've kind of, you know, I've kind of butted heads with people in this movement open this issue that, uh, you know, they think the victim industry, you know, that that it's a lofty goal to work with them. We want to, we want to come together. It's kind of hard to do that. It really is. And it's not you know, it's not from, um, you know, from lack of, you know, lack of effort on our part, the victim ministry doesn't want to sit down and, and, and have a discussion with us. They don't want anything to do with us. They they villainize us and treat us like scum. I mean, obviously, the the biggest names in the movement and their side of the issue, you know, people like Lauren Book, um, you know, they, they they call us all sorts of foul names. And, um you know i'm one of the few people who will call them out on it and of course i get villainized for it and and everything but they don't want to work with us you know and that's the thing is that they want to continue to separate themselves because in order to actually come to a solution would involve looking at taking a harsh look at those those teachings their dogma and admit that some of that dogma may not exactly be right Especially as it relates to reoffending, whether it relates to whether or not sex offenders can be cured, that sort of thing. And they just don't want to do that because it also involves a sacrifice. True religion to follow the real tenets of Christianity involves sacrifice. And I don't mean like human sacrifice or animal sacrifice, but you sacrifice your time, your money, your, your life to do something to benefit other people more than yourself. Right. And the victim industry, of course, they're, they're supposedly doing the same thing, but they're not really doing it to help them. Other people are doing it to help themselves.
1: Well, and the victim <laughs> rights industry as a, as a religious type of uh, organized framework that, that gives it the capabilities that, that it does, uh, it, it, it all boils down to it, it, both these, uh, you know, the victim rights industry and, and religion generally is a, a faith. And, a, and or a, a belief in something, a belief in a doctrine, usually that doctrine is unchanging. It tends to be frozen in time. It's something that you don't question. You don't need to have scientific uh, measurements put to it. No, no. You you simply take it on faith, on belief, without question, and that is what you follow. You, you are a believer. You're not interested in uh, objective facts and Let's face it, uh, the victim's rights industry is, is a lot along those lines. It's a, it's a fixed bit of dogma. Uh, the reason it's fixed is because to allow to bury and to drift means that uh, future uh, cash flows might be put into jeopardy. So we have to have a fixed point here, a fixed agenda, a doctrine that says registered sex offenders are all incurable, like you were getting at a minute ago, Derek, but also uh, they're everywhere, and they uh, and uh, they are a menace to you every moment of the day. So that's what they are. That's our tennis. We're going to go with that. We're going to profit off that. We don't care about facts. Profits are more important than facts. Politics is more important than truth, and that's our agenda.
2: Well, um, education is a threat to faith. That's the most important thing I think people should should know. What we're doing is education, and. Yes, at this point in time, in our movement as a whole, despite that we've been doing this for the better part of a couple of decades now, um, you know we still we're still fighting a huge uphill battle where our numbers are small, um, our you know people are afraid to speak out, and people are afraid to say the things that need to be said, and that you know my message is too harsh um i've got you know i've got uh things to lose um you know i I, you know i've got a family to take care of and support Um, you know if i put my neck out there then somebody might come and blow me up or whatever i mean yes these are all valid um, fears although they might be exaggerated fears i mean i don't know of any activists who have been attacked since being an activist except maybe over the internet um But, you know, it's not going to, you know, these things don't change on their own. I mean, you know, if you look at the history of religion, um, you know, the the entire Christian faith got shook up when, you know, when one man took, you know, took 19 complaints and nailed it to, you know, nailed it to the front door of a church. And, of course, it changed the entire history of, of the church, you know, for better or for worse. And we're kind of at that point now we we've done the equivalent of nailing the 19 tenants to the door of the church you know the question is um you know how you know how willing are we to take this you know uh, you know to re, to um well, the question you know, how, is how willing are we, yeah to, to send this message
1: oh sorry about that now, the, question the, question is, is, the question is will they hang galileo right galileo says yeah. uh we live in a uh uh, an earth centric universe Uh religion at that time, going back to the 14th century, maybe 15th century said, no, no, uh, the, the earth is, the, excuse me, the earth is the center of the universe. Uh, Galileo says, no, it's a heliocentric universe. Um, he was, uh, persecuted for it. Uh, I think he came close to being hanged for it. I, I think he survived it. If am I'm, if, I'm, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, but it's, it's like that, you know, we're, we're going up against the, uh, the the powerful authoritarian church of the 1400s. So there's there's the uh, centuries-old dogma that sex offenders can't be cured. They're everywhere. They're a menace to everybody. That's the the doctrine. That's the dogma. And you're a heretic if you go against that. And because, Jerry, you and I and others in the movement, our movement, have gone against it, then we, the heretics, uh, are are needing to be hung, I suppose, from their viewpoint, to be uh, sacrificed and uh, their, their heresy against uh, the established doctrine that's been proven true. Our faith has said so for ages and ages. That's where we're, that's where we're at. We're going to go with that and uh, don't stand in our way.
2: Right. Um, you know, I was trying to find this article from, I, I think I, I believe it was on Sosin where somebody had discussed, um, you know, the difference between the heliocentric and the, you know, where, where the earth was the center of the universe and, and, you know, the sun was the center of the solar system and they showed the two different charts to show how much different it is. Obviously you can envision the solar system, you know, the sun and the now eight planets that revolve around the sun with their with their neat little circles. Whereas with in the old um you know Earth centric view, um, you know, you have the Earth and you had the, the, the um you know the planets going through doing these very elaborate um you know circles around the earth you know and, and to try to explain it and so you know instead of these nice circles you know you had like these these almost flower type patterns where you know because obviously mercury and venus and jupiter and mars and all the other planets are not in the same places every single night and and, and everything and it, and it was a very complex way of trying to explain things and that's sort of i think that's sort of where we're at with the with the um you know, with, with the whole issue of sexual abuse, because because this entire discussion, well, not our discussion, but the entire discussion about sexual abuse is from a victim-centric standpoint. And so now you have these very complex patterns. And we're trying to explain it without actually studying registered citizens.
1: Right. And what holds a lot of those things together, along with the other establishments, Uh, viewpoints is, uh, of course, this uh, thing bantied about all the time, it seems like the uh, concept of political correctness, and that to be politically correct is to be what you just said, is to be uh, victim centric. Uh, Victims are uh, sacred, and uh, when you're a victim, it gives you a a, a heightened status in society, because you have uh, been taken advantage of, uh, you're the new victim, we celebrate victims today, they're the new uh, big headline story, and that's what uh, you know that that I think that's what uh element is what uh, sad to say guides a lot of our politics today is 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 the uh is the fact that people are are victimized and that there needs to be uh, a great uh celebration of of those persons because they didn't achieve their full potential they were robbed of their full potential that kind of thinking as if uh being sexually abused at the age of fifteen by having uh let's say intercourse with your twenty year old boyfriend okay, yes, it's, it's against the law, but still, were, were you damaged so much so that you couldn't have gone to college or pursued a career of some sort? Did it hold you back? No, it shouldn't have, and I don't, I don't think it does hold people back, but it seems to be that the doctrine says that it does. You're damaged for life, and uh, I think that is the reason it does, quote-unquote, seemingly damage a person for life, if that were true, is to support the profits of the victims' industry.
2: Right, well, I would love to, you know, to delve into this topic again at a future time. I mean, you know, it's a lot, you know, we took off on, we took on a pretty big topic, actually. You know, it was bigger than I realized because, um, you know, I, I made these little short bullet points, and I thought, well, maybe in half an hour we could probably breeze through this. But we've had lot, you know, I think you and I, over the years, uh, I, I brought this up, you know, quite a few times over the last couple of years or so. And I think we've had some very long discussions and I think we're all, you know, now, as I look back on, I think even after talking for a little bit over an hour, we're just <clears throat> scraping the iceberg. Oh, yeah. But, um, you know, but ultimately what I want people to come away with from this conversation is, you know, it's not so much that we were to attack any one thing. It's that, you know, we're trying to get an understanding of how to deal with the victim industry and, you know and, and the only way the only way I can truly describe the victim industry and how they operate is as a form of organized religion you know as as a cult um and I don't mean it in the worst possible way because you know not to me, in my opinion, religion is not completely a bad thing um lots of good people are religious, of course, there's lots of good people that are not religious um you know organized religion sometimes does good things you know i go to churches and and you know it, you know at christmas time and you know and have christmas dinner or get a free meal you know when you know when the money doesn't go as far as you hope or you know they have charities in town to help people get jobs or or um get their cars fixed or whatever you know and those are all good things you know and everything, and of course, you know, people abuse religion as well. And there's a lot of good victim industry advocates, and there's a lot of bad ones as well. And of course, when we say victim industry, we also recognize that just because somebody's a victim advocate, that they're not going to make millions of dollars. Not everybody who runs a business is going to be successful as Walmart.
1: So, you know, but that doesn't make it less of an industry. A good, a good religion, in my way of judging, it would be one that. Uh, above all, uh, pushes the idea that we're all equal under the law. We're all equal under, uh, if you if you believe in God, under under God's in God's universe, we're all equal, and we all have and should have equal opportunities and equal chances. Uh, but uh, many religions don't necessarily play that very strongly. It's more of an individual uh, vertical hierarchical stacking of material gain and 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 career ladder climbing. As opposed to uh, equal citizens under the law, in a political sense, we become economic animals and hierarchical animals at that, and, and getting away from the uh, ideas of equality on the law. So, I, I think that is my definition, at least in part, of a, of a good religion, in that it promotes that idea.
2: Right, and um, and of course, you know, we, we're you know, and we're by the same token, we're not saying that the victim ministry is a bad thing, and you know, it has its place, but you know, personally. And I'm sure that some people, and you're free to disagree. It's a wonderful thing that the U.S. Constitution, you know, your freedom to, your freedom of speech, you're free to disagree with me, and a lot of people probably will, even within this movement. But I feel personally that the victim industry doesn't really have a place in discussing sex offender laws, sex offender residency restrictions, because the, because that has nothing to do with victims. You know, they're this, You know, that's the sex offender industry, not the victim industry. When you start talking about the registry, but that's just my opinion. I'm sure you, have you know, Tom. I don't know how you feel about it, but uh, you know how you feel. The, what the place the victim industry's place in all this is, if they even have a place.
1: But, um, well, uh, they, there's there's good and bad to it. Uh, the the a place that they do have it should be the uh, the promotion of education for people victimized in society. Of in in their case. Uh, sex abuse is is a, a problem that needs to be addressed. Uh, addressed that is, and and addressing it means putting attention and putting putting a focal point on where the problem actually mostly lives, and that of course is in uh, the cases that uh, involve uh, sex abuse in the family by people not on the registry, mostly. And that educating parents about the real hazards of uh, brothers and stepfathers and ministers and church ladies and swim coaches and all the rest. I mean, it comes from people they know. If they would do that and stop with the uh, persecution of former offenders, I think that would uh, certainly get us all along a lot better. Yeah.
2: Well, you know, now I'm thinking about dinner and um I'm going to, we're going to wrap it up here in a second but you know what the current state you know I'll, I'll end with this since my mind's on food now um you know the current state of the victim industry um and, you know in this movement as a whole sometimes it, it, it makes me think of when you're going to cook something and you say let's say you're going to make some potluck well there's some really good you know there's there's food that's really delicious chocolate's really good for you pie well maybe it's not good for you but it sure does taste good uh, coffee tastes good, um, you know, pizza tastes good, but, um, you know, if you threw everything that you like together in a pot and you boiled it together, you're going to come out with something that's probably not going to taste very good, and that's kind of what we've done with, with you know, with, with how we approach, um, you know, sex offense prevention. You know, one person has an idea hmm, that tastes good. I think I'm going to throw that in the pot, and somebody else has got, well, I've got this, and I've got that, you know, I've got, um, this person likes pepper, this person likes uh, anchovies, and all of a sudden that all goes into the pot, and it comes out, and it's disgusting, and it, and it's very, you know, nobody wants to eat it, and that's kind of how the laws are right now, it's it's just pot luck, and, and it's bad pot luck at that. i know it's probably a funny way to put it but that's kind of you know that's what comes to mind with all this um you know lots of ingredients also taste bad by themselves obviously nobody eats flour but flour is a good ingredient in cake so you know sometimes what you've got to do is you just got to find the ingredients that go great together and you find a way to mix them together and ultimately you come out with something good and I'm fixing to go look for something good right now, so um, I'm ready to end the call if you are, Tom.
1: I am, and thank you, Jerry. Yeah,
2: Till next time.
1: Later.
0: With Lucky Landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom?
1: Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo when we lost track of time. <gasps>